0: The window to limit warming to one and a half degrees is uh, is closing. We can still do it, but we are absolutely not on track. The total public and private investments in fossil fuels are still higher than the total investments in mitigation and adaptation combined. There is sufficient capital and liquidity for it. That is not the problem. It's just going to the wrong things. And the challenge of closing the gaps is actually highest in developing countries
1: is the DePendance podcast. We address the complex issues of our time and how they manifest themselves in our cities and urban regions. From Rotterdam, the Netherlands, we interview writers, scholars and top leaders. My name is Thijs Barendsen. And my name is Geert Maarsen. It is five to midnight. The door is closing on us. It is a last and final warning. Just a few quotes on the latest IPCC report on climate mitigation that came out last year. 17 chapters by 287 scientists from 65 countries. And the language is stronger than ever. Yes, we can save the world, but it has to be done now. We have invited Helene de Konink, professor, climate expert, and lead author of the IPCC report, on the latest findings on what to do and how you line up hundreds of scientists from all over the world for one of the most urgent, but also controversial issues of our time. With us is professor of sociotechnical innovation and climate change, Helene de Konink.
0: Thank you. Very nice to be here, one of the first times to pre- present this uh, this report to such a nice, young, hopeful audience. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to speak to you uh, about the key results of the report that was published exactly three weeks ago, actually almost on the dot. I think the press conference was sort of at 5 p.m. or so, three weeks ago. After a very long negotiation between governments about the text of the summary for policymakers of the report. So I'll first say something about um, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and how it works, so that you know a little bit about the background of these reports, why they're written and how they're written, and why they make such an impact when they come out. And then I'll uh, go into the key results and hopefully end with some messages of, uh, of hope. (laughs) <laughs> so um, the IPCC is an intergovernmental organization. That means it's governed by members, which are all countries. So they together decide which reports are being written, what the table of contents of the report is on a high level, They uh, um, nominate authors for the report, so Josita used to be an author uh, and was nominated by the Dutch government probably, or by the Indian government. The Dutch government, I was nominated by the Dutch government as well, and also by the European Commission, I think. The reports are written based on peer-reviewed literature almost only. We really uh, assess the literature, so IPCC is not a research organization, it does not conduct research, all it does is summarise and assess the peer-reviewed literature, puts it together into very big uh, reports. So it does that in in a couple of steps, so there's a scoping meeting, then approval of an outline by the governments. Authors are selected based on, uh, of course, expertise, you want a broad set of expertise, but also uh, geographical representation, because you want people from really all over the world uh, to write this report together. Uh, And they also pay a little bit of attention to uh, men and females. Um, Then we meet for the first time, we write a report of of zero-order draft, very rough. We internally review it, write the first-order draft, and that gets reviewed by hundreds and hundreds of experts from around the world. And we get many, many comments, and the rule is that every comment we get, we have to address and we have to sort of write a response to that comment. So my chapter in the AR6, we didn't get that many comments. Actually, it was not too bad, about 500. Uh, in the 1.5 degrees report, my chapter got about 3,000 comments, I think, in this first round. So, And you have to, with a gr- group of 15 people or so, you have to really look at every single one of them. And the comments and the responses are made public. So you can look them up if you care for reading a couple of thousand comments. Then we... Um, go back and we revise the reports, make a new version, it goes back to those same experts, and it goes to all the governments associated with IPCC. And then you get yeah, slightly more political comments sometimes. You can really sometimes see from which government the comment is, is, is coming. Um, so we got a little bit more comments, not, still not that many, actually. Um, and after that, we finalized the report. And we write a summary for policymakers. And that is a really interesting document because that document is sort of the ownership, is owned by the governments in IPCC. So they agree on that summary for policymakers text. As authors, we are there when they agree on it. Uh, but we are sort of the gatekeepers of the science. We have to make sure that what they agree on is in agreement with the underlying report. So in principle, the ideas, they negotiate, and we just say yes or no. But of course, in practice, we, we really help them make a better text. So that, that is sort of this final step. Um, the, we got actually, I think it was about 5,000 comments on the last version of the Summary for Policy Makes, a document of 25 pages. And yeah. um, but then you really get an idea of what the government uh, want out of this Summary for policy makers. We go into the approval, and that's it. So I sometimes get the question, like, what do governments really influence in the report? I mean, they, they decide which reports are being written. That's important. They decide on the outline. They don't decide on the authors. That's done by the Bureau. So that's done by the IPCC uh, bureaucracy, so to say. They provide comments, but if the comments are not in line with the literature, we can reject them, and we will reject them. Uh, they decide on the summary for policymakers, but we make sure it's uh, it's consistent with the underlying report. So there's definitely government influence, but it's not absolute. It's not like we revise the report significantly based on the government comments. They basically usually really improve the report, actually. But the nice thing about this approval of the SPM is that they actually are sort of obliged to observe what is in there. And because that is the case, as IPCC, we cannot be policy prescriptive. Because at that point, we would basically tell the governments what to do or say, well, science advises you to do this. And that is really the task of the UNFCCC. So that's the task of the Paris Agreement and those uh, policy mechanisms. So there's a task division between IPCC and UNFCC. UNFCC is where the policies are decided. IPCC is where the science is assessed. So we cannot say things like you know nuclear energy is a is a good idea or is a bad idea. We can say you know the advantages according to the literature are these, the disadvantages are these, and you know it, uh, the scenarios say this and that about it. So we try to be very factual. So then the report gets approved. So normally in a physical setting, this is sort of a room. This was for the one and a half degrees reports in October 2018. Um, You get a long approval session of about a week, you know, very tough negotiations. Uh, But this time it was two weeks and it looked more like this, (laughs) because it was an online meeting. Um, It took longer because you have to take time zones into account. And it looked more like this, so the top here is uh, Lavanya, she is an author in the international cooperation chapter. And she was on the hot seat at this moment, that means that you basically have to answer comments from governments, suggest new text uh, and, and try to get sort of agreement on the text. And below there you see some of the delegates from uh, Saudi Arabia, Japan, uh, Germany, etc. It was the longest IPC approval ever, it went more than two days over time. And the controversies were really on mainly the, um, the, the basically the phase out and what we say there about fossil fuels. So particularly fossil fuel exporting countries were really saying, well, you, uh, uh, can you say that only for unabated fossil fuels? So nuance it a little bit. I have a controversial issue with finance, um, including one uh, uh, figure that I will show at the end that was actually uh, removed at the end. And another big issue was justice and equity, with some governments really wanting much more emphasis on that than was in the draft of the uh, Summary for Policymakers. And those are really the three things that really took a lot lot of time in the the approval. But in the end, it was uh, approved. So this is the third report of three reports. First one was Working Group One, August 2021. Uh, on the physical science basis, basically said climate change and human influence is a fact. And the second one was published on the 28th of February, so very recently, and it was on the impacts of climate change and adaptation measures that we can still take, also the limits to adaptation in some cases, and, uh, and vulnerability to climate change. And then this is the report on mitigation of climate change, which is really emission reduction and carbon dioxide. Uh, removals. Okay, the um, report was written by almost two hundred eighty authors from sixty-five countries. Um, yeah, about forty uh, percent from developing countries. Uh, a lot of contributing authors that added like a you know paragraph or a figure. Um, more than 18,000 papers were uh, referenced in the report. We looked at many more, but not all could be included. And in total, 59,000 review comments were addressed. Okay, then to the content. the really the key messages uh, of the report. First of all, the window to limit warming to 1.5 degrees is, uh, is closing. We can still do it, but we are absolutely not on track. And we need accelerated climate change mitigation to still make it happen. We conclude basically two things about those mitigation options. One for the near term. Many options in the near term, so up to 2030 or something, are feasible. And many mainly face institutional barriers and are in line with the Sustainable Development Goals, at least uh, on average across the board. However, for the longer term particularly, we really need systemic transformations. We need uh, fast transitions. And those can only be enabled if we have a number of conditions in place. And those include finance, so a change of the financial system, governance and collaboration, policy instruments, capacity building, we need way more people everywhere in the world who know what they're doing, who are educated on this technological innovation and behavioral change. And we also conclude that justness of those transitions and also the national circumstances in different places and regions are very important for that success. So the message is we can still do it, the window is narrowing, we can also do it in a sustainable way. It looks like according to the literature, but we really have to hurry up and make, uh, make sure the conditions are in place. So I'll, I'll give a little bit of color to some of these results. This is uh, based on on global modeling on integrated assessment models, as they're called. Um, and actually, I think we have one of the contributing authors on this uh, in the room uh, over there. He works with the PBL. Um, Basically, if we still want to limit warming to one and a half degrees, we need to peak global greenhouse gas emissions. So that is all emissions, CO2, methane, N2O and and other greenhouse gas emissions before 2025. That's the 30 months that uh, uh, Geert was talking about. We have to reduce them by roughly half by 2030 and the net-zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Methane emissions would have to be reduced by about a third, globally again by 2030, so that's in eight years. So we still have a little bit of time, but we need to really hurry up. If we want to limit warming to around two degrees, we also need to peak global emissions before 2025, so in the next uh, two, three years or so but we have a little bit more time to reduce them afterwards, uh, only a quarter or so by 2030 or shortly thereafter, and net zero CO2 in 2070. So, If you look at the pathways there uh, on the left uh, graph, uh, running up to 2050, We really want to be on this sort of light blue path going down and you see those numbers correspond to that. There's two two two-degree scenarios. One is basically taking immediate action, which is much more sensible and, and cheap. The other one is if we take the plans of the Paris Agreement, they are implemented, they are not ambitious enough. So you see emissions are not going down that much. And then they need to go down much, much more steeply in order to limit warming, still to two degrees. We cannot implement those nationally determined contributions for the Paris Agreement and still remain below one and a half degrees. That is basically out of sight if we are in 2030. We are not on track for this kind of pathways. If we look at the past emissions since 1990, this gives you the different emission categories, the different greenhouse gases. Uh, We see that it's still rising on an annual basis with more than a percent per year uh, globally. It is actually a slightly lower increase compared to the first uh, decade of this uh, century. Uh, so it seems to level off, but actually that first decade of the century was a very exceptionally high growth. So uh, that was actually more of the outlier. Uh, we have seen the largest absolute increase in greenhouse gases over the past decades. Uh, overall, the, the pace has gone down a little bit, but because it's coming from a higher base, you have... Uh, Uh, an absolute increase in emissions of course it dipped a little bit in uh, 2020 because of the the measures to combat covid but it looks like they are rebounding again in 2021 those numbers were not yet in the literature so they're not uh, in this graph if it continues this way we are not limiting warming to one and a half degrees but at the same time we really see a lot of evidence for action Um, a number of countries have Uh, implemented climate policy and have shown a decrease in emissions even of consumption-based emissions. So not just the emissions that we have in our countries, but also of emissions that uh, are the result of our consumption, our imported emissions, so to say. So suppose, you know, you you drive a car here, the emissions are coming from your car here, but the car may be built in uh, Korea or something. So the emissions that are associated with the building of the car would now be allocated to Korea, so they Korea has emissions. But of course it's our car, right? The, those, that car was built because we want to buy it. So the question is, where do you allocate this, uh, these emissions? So consumption-based emissions in some countries have even uh, decreased, uh, consistent with 2 degrees. So there's some evidence of, uh, of action. Also, lots of zero emission targets. Uh, So net zero CO2 or net zero greenhouse gas emission targets are adopted by over 800 cities and hundred regions, and also a number of of countries. If you adopt uh, targets, that doesn't mean yet that actually the target will be reached. So it's very clear that the implementation is is still staying behind, and uh, unless there's really immediate and deep emission reductions, we're still going to miss. Uh, the one and a half degrees. I also said in the key messages that a lot of near-term action is actually uh, feasible. This is a graph you probably can't read and that's okay. It has uh, a lot of different uh, mitigation options. So individual uh, measures Uh, and on the uh, x-axis you see the emission reduction potential in billions of tons of CO2 equivalent that can be reached and then the colors indicate at what cost that could be reached. So this is only the technologies and the cost, no other factors are included here. And if you add it all up, um, global emissions in 2030 can actually already be halved with options that are below a cost uh, of about 100 US dollar per tonne CO2 equivalent, which is roughly what the emission trading scheme prices in Europe were about a, a month ago. So that's fairly affordable. However, almost all of these mitigation options face um, institutional barriers, so barriers related to legislation that is not working or or political barriers. So that's where most of the uh, barriers are. And many of these mitigation options are synergistic with the sustainable development goals. And that was also assessed uh, in a graph like this. Um, This is a group of mitigation options in urban areas. And they tend to have a lot of synergies with the sustainable development goals. As you may know, there's seventeen sustainable development goals. You see them numbered there at the at the top. If you look closely, number thirteen is missing. That is because that is climate action. And we thought, you know, mitigation options are probably consistent with climate action, so we didn't assess that. But the the dark pluses are sort of where we're quite sure about the positive interactions between that particular sustainable development goals and that particular mitigation option. And Remember, this is all underpinned by a lot of literature. Um, If the colour is a bit lighter, uh, the evidence base is not so strong. If there's no uh, assessment, uh, then you will not see a a block there. So you see for these kind of options, there's actually quite a lot of synergy. So there was also a lot of attention in the report to urban areas and what they could do. For agriculture and forestry, the the picture is a little bit more mixed. There are more uh, potential trade-offs between... Uh, different mitigation options. So that means you would have to take more care to make sure that these options actually can be implemented in that particular place or uh, the the governance needs to be um, more closely uh, watched or or planned to, to make it beneficial. So that was for the near term. There's a lot we can do on the near term. If we look at the longer term to net zero, 2040 maybe for the Netherlands, 2050 uh, for the, the rest of the world. Uh, we really need systemic transformations in order to make that happen. It will not be a surprise to most of you. We need them in energy, in land use, thanks, and ecosystems, in industry, in our material streams, so the circular economy and all of that, urban area, areas, buildings, and transport and all of these have their own systemic uh, transitions uh, going on for mitigation and actually also for adaptation because at the same time we need to adapt to a one and a half degree warmer or maybe even uh, even more warmer world, right that even one and a half degrees has significant impacts and requires adaptation which is also in its own way systemic. So I'll just go into a couple of the uh, system transitions and especially how those can be enabled. So I, will, I won't have time to go through energy and land, etc. Uh, but I can say something about some of these enabling conditions that I uh, mentioned earlier and how uh, and what they can can bring. A very important one, which is quite novel in this IPCC report, because IPCC tends to be, you know, engineers and economists, and they they come up with technologies and policy instruments. <laughs> and but this time we really had a significant amount of behavioral scientists. Um, who looked at the, the literature uh, on that. And they concluded that, uh, they tried to touch a number to it, quite uncertain number, but by 2050, we can actually achieve 40 to 70% of emission reductions by demand-side or behavioural change uh, measures. So walking and cycling, electrified and public transport, um, reducing air uh, travel, etc. However, these behavioral changes are not just the responsibility of individuals in order to change your behavior you also need to change your systems again so it's actually you always need both both sides it's not uh, it's not the point is not to loathe all responsibility on the individual and also there are many areas in the world where actually still people still need to consume more right they are currently at a level that they uh, um, uh, that they're actually not at a sustainable consumption level so Um, They require additional housing, energy, etc. That's the enabling condition of behavior. Technology and innovation, something that everybody always loves, because there's only good news on that, and actually there was a lot of good news in the report. Thanks to investments, public investments, private ones, but particularly public ones, and policies, costs of a couple of renewable energy uh, technologies have declined very rapidly, especially for solar PV, but also for onshore wind. Uh, electricity, um, levelized cost of electricity are now really competitive with fossil fuels. And that is really new. So that's really new and good news. Also, batteries for uh, electric vehicles have declined rapidly, and you see also an increase in their deployment in these graphs. Um, However, the adoption of these technologies tends to be higher in developed countries. And developing countries benefit much less from those technologies, and least developed countries, even, even less. So, we need to also acknowledge that this is uh, basically a rich country's uh, development of these uh, declining costs. And it's much, you're seeing it much less in many developing countries. Actually, some of the environmental impacts are, um, are actually um, mostly happening in developing countries like lithium mines or, um, uh, yeah. Um, A third one is law and, and policy policy instruments. So increasingly countries enact climate laws and that then increasingly uh, enables climate change related litigation. So citizens suing the government for uh, not achieving their climate goals. There's actually a lot of developments over there and in some cases this has really led to enhanced uh, ambition as well. We're also seeing that uh, regulatory and and economic instruments have proven really effective in in reducing emissions in many places, but you often need policy packages. It's not just carbon pricing that's going to do the trick. It's really a mix of policy instruments and otherwise you will not get this transition going. Uh, And we also need much better governance and collaboration uh, across different uh, actors for that. And finally, um, and that's my, my last slide before closing, Uh, The last enabling condition for these system transitions is that the investment gap needs to be closed, particularly in developing countries. So we concluded that the total public and private investments in fossil fuels are still higher than the total investments in mitigation and adaptation combined. And that, of course, means that your financial system is not working towards uh, preventing climate change or adapting to it. The financial flows for mitigation need to be three to six times lower by uh, higher, sorry, uh, by 2030 um, compared to now in order to limit warming to one and a half or two degrees. Uh, there is sufficient capital and liquidity for it. That is not the problem. It's just going to the wrong things, and the challenge of closing the gaps is actually highest in developing countries. And this graph that you see here is actually in the report, so I can I can show it, but it was at the last moment removed from the summary for policymakers in that government negotiation. And the reason was that it mentioned, and I'm sure we can have a discussion about it later, it mentioned this developing and developed countries. And remember what I said at the start about the task division between the UNFCCC and the IPCC. And the Paris Agreement actually... Indicates that uh, rich countries should help pay for mitigation and adaptation of uh, poorer countries. So, according to some governments, this graph implies that this number, this, this investment gap, would have to be provided by rich countries. And they said this is prescriptive; you cannot say that as an IPCC. So, eventually, they could not. They tried all kinds of different versions of the figure, but they could not agree on the outcome. So, it was removed from the summary for policymakers but it's still in the underlying uh, report. So, we need system transitions, we need these enabling conditions to make them happen, and it all needs to be done in a, a just way. And um, a very acti- actually very activist type of statement, especially for IPCC, uh, is uh, that the evidence is very clear. Uh, we cannot wait with action any longer, so thank you for your attention.
1: You are listening to the Dependance podcast. Our editors are Sereman Diaz, Fari Tabarki, Geert Maarsen, and myself, Thijs Barendsen. Music composition and recording and mixing is done by Plug Studio, and the graphic design is by Studio Spaas. The Dependance is kindly supported by the Creative Industries NL and the municipality of Rotterdam. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, subscribe to our podcast, and check our website, thedependance.eu for new episodes and live events, and let us know who we should talk to next.